Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. This is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars, but honestly, it's mostly about Star Wars. And welcome back. We're happy to talk to you guys today about uh, Star Wars movies and, you know, kind of pick up where we left off with The Empire Strikes Back. And we hope that we can get into a spirited and lively discussion about why this is the best movie or why everyone says this is the best movie. But before we do that, we want to bring everybody up to speed with what happens in the film. So, Kevin, it, it, if you can give us a plot synopsis, you know, it, it's basically three acts. What are we looking at? Yeah, so there are really three acts to the movie. The first act is um, mostly about the Battle of Hoth. Um, so Hoth is, a, is an ice planet that the rebels have a secret base on, the empire discovers the secret base, and they send a fleet and a ground force to attack it. And it's a really interesting sort of Star Wars battle situation because we have a little bit of a space battle, we have mostly a ground battle, which for a space movie is um, a little bit unusual, but it's a, it's a pretty, pretty cool battle scene. Um, the second act then, as the rebels escape from Hoth, the second act mostly deals with um, the two, two different things. One thing is, um, sort of Han, Leia, Chewie, C-3PO are running from the Empire in a broken Millennium Falcon, which is sort of a, a running theme and a running gag through the movies. And then the second part is Luke going to Dagobah and being trained as a Jedi by Master Yoda. And those two sort of those two plot threads of the second act come together in the third act when the Millennium Falcon arrives at Cloud City. Um, some things happen. Luke is compelled to go also to Cloud City, which is uh, a city on a planet called Bespin, and uh, try to rescue the Millennium Falcon crew, and ends up with uh, the final epic battle with Darth Vader, and probably the biggest uh, secret reveal in uh, all of Star Wars history. All right, so before we really dig into any of that and give you what those reveals might be, uh, when you think of these three acts, what what resonates the most with you? What's your favorite part that uh, you know really brings home Star Wars for you? W without digging into the specifics, but which which act really gets to you there? Yeah, I think the second act really represents like is really very, is really core Star Wars, right? We've got a combination of sort of like a space pursuit, some clever shenanigans by Han Solo, a little bit of a relationship thing, and and the blossoming relationship between Han and Leia, and at the same time in that act we have. Luke training with Yoda. Yoda is teaching us about the intricacies of the Force. We have probably some of the best quotes in all of Star Wars coming out of that. Um, and it's really our first, even though we got a little bit of a taste of the Force in A New Hope, this is really our first exposure to like sort of the Force, its teachings, what it can do, the dark side, the light side, and all that kind of stuff. So that really, like that core piece of the movie is like probably the most Star Warsy Star Wars of all the Star Wars. I 100% co-sign that. So let, let's go back to the beginning. We got Act One. We got the battle at Hoth. Uh, you know, we learn that uh, Luke is out there. It, it's this ice planet. For those of you who haven't seen this film, uh, it's a wild, different planet from what we saw at Tatooine to be. And Luke is out there in the cold. Uh, he he's probably gonna freeze to death if we we don't find him. Um, Han Solo. 
uh, is going to go out and get his friend. He's actually really mean to some of the guys out there, I, I thought. He was kind of disrespectful. They, they tell him that, you know, you're, you're going to freeze, and he's like, I'll see you in hell. And it's like, that's not a nice way to talk to the same guys you're going, you know, shoulder to shoulder in battle with, but... Yeah, quite frankly, I think Harrison Ford kind of forgot what movie he was shooting at that point, and when in Indiana Jones, this is a, a sort of iconic scene where he mounts a tauntaun, which is sort of like a kangaroo horse of some sort, and he's ready to ride out. And I feel like he slips into a little Indiana Jones there because that behavior was a little more characteristic of him. And and that's sort of how Indiana Jones would act if he was jumping on a horse and going to get his buddy. That, I agree with that. I, yeah. I really do. There, there's the other aspect that he was speaking with Leia, and she was not as receptive to his advances. Their, their banter was, was not as romantically inclined, and it was very romantically frustrated, if you will. Um, so I, I think he, he's probably upset about that as well. Yeah, a little bit. And I want to drop in two points on the, the romance, if we can, for a second. Please. That take place in the, in the Hoth sequence. So the first part is, um, yeah, Han's advances on Leia and her sort of rebuffing his advances. And then the second part is, um, and maybe we're going to get to this in a minute after they find Luke, but the, the scene where um, they're talking about that and then Luke and Leia have a moment. Oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So in, in sort of a continuation of the fight between Han and Leia uh, after they rescue Luke, they're sort of sitting in Luke's recovery room. They continue arguing. Luke makes some comment about how maybe, or, or Leia said she's, maybe she's more interested in Luke than Han and she kisses him. And then Han gets mad at Luke and he goes off in a huff and everything. The weirdest part about that is that later in Return of the Jedi, when it's revealed that Luke and Leia are twin brother and sister, Leia says, somehow I've known, somehow I've always known. And it always goes back to that very romantic kiss. And it's like, if you've always known, what's going on there? Yeah, it's, it's just not good. It's yeah. not good. So, so we prefer you know, she didn't always know. We would prefer she didn't always know. And just for the record, since this is a little bit of a relationships podcast, a lot of like not good relationship theory going on in here. Yeah, I mean, we're very happily married. We, we've not found ourselves in a space war love triangle. Uh, these are relationship aspects we don't identify with. And, and so our interpretation of what they're going through is certainly... Uh, our perspective it, it has nothing to do with what they, they were feeling and acting so luke's out he's gonna freeze to death han uh heads out into the cold and he's riding this weird horse camel thing called a tom tom and luke has been captured by the uh abominable snowman or, or something like that it's called a wampa a wampa uh he, he's been captured by an abominable snowman, yeah. wampa kind of creature, and the guy's hanging Luke. He's probably going to eat him. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the plan. He's got to basically he's got him stored in his pantry, and uh, he's getting ready to eat him. Yeah. So Han comes. Luke uses the Force, uh, you know, and basically they somehow get away. But Luke's basically frozen to death. Yeah, and this is a good example. This is like the first time that we see Luke using the Force outside of his shot at the Death Star, which was debatably a Force user. But while he's hanging upside down, his lightsaber is buried in snow, and he focuses, concentrates. And it's the first time in Star Wars that we see um, tele uh, telekinesis of the Force, moving an object with the, with the Force and with the mind. And he's able to pull his lightsaber out of the snow, free himself, cut the arm off the Wampa, and then escape the Wampa snow cave out into the snows of I, uh, of Hoth, where, yes, he's about to freeze to death until Han finds him. 
and basically saves him by cutting open his dead Tauntaun and shoving Luke inside the guts of it to keep him warm until he builds a tent. I'm not sure that's a super great strategy for keeping somebody alive in the snow. I'm not an outdoorsy guy, but that feels like that feels pretty extreme. Yeah, but I think it was a dire circumstance that the last ditch effort to not freeze to death. Still going to need a hell of a shower. Oh, disgusting. Agreed. So he comes back. Everyone's happy to see Luke. Leia might be overly happy. It's concerning. And then, unfortunately, the Empire realizes that there's a rebel base on Hoth, and that's where we have the ground fight scene. Previously, we've just had space fight scenes. So, Kevin, you know, is there anything unique that sticks out about this other than it just being the first ground scene? I mean, not really. One of the things, like, as far as character development is it shows Luke as the leader of the Rogue Squadron, which is uh, the squadron for which Rogue One, the movie, is named. Um, it's sort of his first uh, leadership activity, um, piloting sort of a, a what they call a snowspeeder, which is a little, like, atmospheric plane fighter thing. Um, and we see the, the ATAT or ADATs for the first time, which were the big camel-looking uh, armored transports that the Empire has. And then the other thing that's interesting about it is that this is one of the first times that we see um, Darth Vader uh, react to his fleet failing. So Admiral Ozzeld, who's the admiral of the of the little fleet that Darth Vader is is commanding, um, he comes out of light speed too early. He spoils the element of surprise, and we see Darth Vader in our in our second sort of view of of uh, force telekinesis in this. Uh, Darth Vader chokes out his own admiral on his bridge using the force and then appoints uh, Captain Piet to be Admiral Piet. And we start to see this pattern now of Darth Vader, one small mistake by somebody in the in the pursuit of the Millennium Falcon, and they get killed regardless of rank. And it basically becomes a thing where you don't want to be an admiral on his deck anymore. Yeah, you're much better off in the Empire if you're never on the same ship as Darth Vader. I, I think that's, that's probably the big takeaway. If yeah. you find yourself conscripted or if you so chose to join the empire uh armies then really your best bet is to be somewhere on the outer rim and never encounter vader too true all right so everyone escapes we've got the millennium falcon mostly broken but we've got uh the droids well no we've got c-3po we've got chewbacca we've got luke uh, Leia and we've got Han and they are on a busted Millennium Falcon and they're getting away and uh, it's not super busted but it's still not a hundred percent right yeah they can't jump into hyperspace which in Star Wars basically jumping into hyperspace traveling faster than light you're untraceable and unchaseable and so like the the basically the getaway premise is if you can get clear of a planet's gravity mass and you can jump into hyperspace you're basically home free every time they try to jump into hyperspace on the Millennium falcon they get this pathetic sound and then can't do it so yeah yeah so they escape but not as quickly as they'd like luke gets into a little ship he flies off with r2d2 he plugs in the coordinates and they fly to dagobah which is a gray swampy planet that yoda um for if anyone's listening who doesn't know who Yoda is, he's about three and a half feet tall. He is, at this point, about 850, almost 900 years old. Uh, he's green. He's a Muppet, um, voiced by Frank Oz, you know, supplied by, you know, Jim Henson's Muppets. So he he's a very old Jedi living on this ugly, swampy planet, and he's kind of a goofy guy, if you think about it. He's been a hermit for, what, 
18 years. Yeah. He, he went into exile at the, at the time of the rise of the empire. And on the day that Luke was born, Luke's about 18, maybe 20 at this point. I don't know, maybe 25. I don't know. So, so Yoda's been living by himself, just talking to people through the force for the last like, couple decades on this swamp planet and just meditating and waiting for his opportunity to train Luke to take down the empire. Yes. So Luke shows up and he is the same disrespectful brat that we met on Tatooine in A New Hope. And this is really disappointing because you'd like to think that he's made some progress along the way. But here he is. He meets his elder that he should be respecting the heck out of. And instead he disrespects him and treats him like he's less than. He thinks he's a weird native creature to the planet. And it is a waste of its time. Um, Yoda... I think eventually just, you know, takes a moment and reveals himself when he says that he cannot teach him, um, when he says that he has no patience. And that's when you realize that Yoda might be this cranky hermit who's, you know, very, very quirky, but he is also extremely wise and extremely knowledgeable and a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I mean, the way that this scene was set up in the movie, if you didn't know that that was Yoda, you think that, you know, Luke's crashed on this swamp planet. This goofy little critter is sort of all up in his business, making a mess of his stuff, deliberately testing his patience, really. And then when he reveals that he is, in fact, Yoda, you know, the first time you see that, it's a big like, whoa, this this little this little dude's Yoda. And um, and then Yoda has a weird conversation with the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi and eventually decides to train Luke. Um, but he does point out the dangers of Luke's impatience, um, of Luke's desire for adventure. He has a really great line that he says, adventure, excitement, a Jedi craves not these. Um, and he calls Luke reckless. And that sort of foreshadows some things that are to come in, uh, in Luke's personal journey. Completely agree. Uh, you know, in Yoda's experience, moving quickly and jumping to conclusions have never been successful and the fact that that's exactly the type of thing that luke wants to do his anxious behavior his constant need to move on to the next thing without truly mastering the thing he's on his willingness to give up so quickly there's a scene where luke's ship is you know kind of stuck in the swamp and he and r2 have been using their you know normal resources to try to get the ship out and after a day of training with Yoda, you know, Luke's trying to do some force exercises and he's failing. And then Yoda takes a step back and, and he lifts his hand up and he slowly lifts the ship out of the swamp. This tiny little guy lifts this big thing out of the, the swamp. And, you know, the what, what's the line? Judge me by my size or judge me not by my size. You know, it, it goes to point out that, you know, important big things can come in small packages and you know kevin you're a little bit bigger than me yeah. wouldn't you say a little bit um I, i'm pretty important to you even though i'm smaller quite <laughs> so, yes you yeah. know i, I think it, it just kind of goes to see that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover and that that's what luke's been doing and yoda once again shows luke why he shouldn't be doing it Unfortunately, it doesn't stick as that it continues to be a running theme, but uh, eventually the message gets through. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, the, one of the one of the best lines in the whole thing. And there are some really great speeches about the force in in that training sequence. But the last thing when Yoda lifts the ship out, Luke says that's or Luke says, I can't believe it. 
And Yoda says, that's why you failed. And I think that's both a, an important sort of Star Wars force lesson, but also kind of a good life lesson is if you don't believe something's possible, you're guaranteed to fail. Um, and that was sort of where Luke's, Luke's head was at. He, he, he tried. And uh, that's also the other line, try, do, do or do not. There is no try. But, but I think there is something to this notion that uh, belief, belief can make it real and certainly disbelief guarantees failure. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't believe it can happen, if you don't try, it will not happen. If you do it, it will happen. E- even if it doesn't happen the way that you want it to or in the time frame that you want it to. And, and that's what we see with Luke, just how slow he is to get that message. But at the same time, when we learn about Jedi training in the Clone Wars or we learn about it in the prequel trilogy, these Jedi younglings, children, they're, they're taken at a very young age and they start training at, what, two, three years old? Yeah, something like so that. So Luke is just a little bit late to the Jedi training party. So he's got a lot of bad habits he has to unlearn. Um, and then the other thing that we learn about Dagobah, which we don't really understand and I, I would encourage you guys if you haven't seen the Clone Wars season six to uh, check that out um, it's on Disney plus it's a cartoon show they're short episodes pretty easy but there's one episode where Yoda goes to Dagobah and we learn about the force so I'll, I'll set this up where there's a weird part of the swamp it's got this real bad juju to it Luke is looking at it and he's like, what's over there? And, you know, Yoda kind of cautions him to it. Yeah. And so there's there's what's called the Dark Side Cave. Um, in the old Legends canon, the story of the Dark Side Cave was that a uh, Dark Lord of the Sith was killed there and it was imbued with Dark Side power. But however it came about, it's a, it's a little cave in Dagobah that is strong with the Dark Side. And if you go into it, um, kind of your your greatest fears or your the manifestation of your personal dark side can be revealed to you. So in Clone Wars, as Amanda pointed out, Yoda goes into that cave and he sees a vision of the fall of the Jedi and he sees his own future failure and he sees the rise of Darth Vader and he sees the rise of the Emperor and he realizes then that he needs to do some work to try to prevent those things. Unfortunately, he fails to do that. Um, when Luke visits the cave, um, Yoda tells him that he doesn't need his weapons. He brings them anyway, which sort of reveals an element of his fear. And as he passes through the cave, he sees a vision of Darth Vader, has a brief lightsaber battle with him, cuts his head off, and sees... Well, he, he sees a potential future, but sorry to cut you off. Yeah. If you notice, when Luke goes in there and he insists on taking his lightsaber... He does not engage in a lightsaber fight with Vader. Vader's just standing there. Then Luke opens up his lightsaber, and then we see Vader's saber. That's it, a great point. Um, it's the actions that are started by Luke that are mirrored in the dark side in that cave. That's true. Yeah. And then once Luke cuts the head off of the vision Darth Vader, the, the mask sort of explodes, and you see Luke's face, foretelling that Luke may, if he continues down this path, become Darth Vader. Exactly. Um, so the other, you know, if we can leave Dagobah and, you know, visit our, our friends, uh, Han and Leia and Chewie and C-3PO, they're in this asteroid field. Um, this is where we really see the love between Han and Leia develop far more than, you know, essentially pigtail pulling on the school playground. Um, 
and, and you see their relationship you see that she really does love him and he really does love her and they have a bit of a messed up way of expressing it but you're starting to really see that it's clear and that that kiss that she had with Luke was truly just to make him jealous and had nothing to do with any feelings that way towards Luke which is very good um C-3PO is a mess I, I mean yeah I mean C-3PO is the comic relief I guess in this sequence and something to sort of lighten the mood because you've got some you got some pretty heavy stuff going you've got you know a busted ship you're being chased by an imperial fleet you've got some weird relationship things and then c-3po is sort of he he is kind of a mess he's he's afraid of what's going on but because some of the problems with the ship require him to sort of translate some computer stuff for everybody they keep him awake awake and around and he just keeps stumbling into making messes of everything and flailing around and waving his hands and 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 being a general mess and he in fact interrupts in a you know in a, obviously a set piece you know comic relief kind of thing he interrupts Han and Leia just about to kiss with some kind of reveal I fixed the main reactor or some I don't know nonsense and and um, you know and and it interrupts the moment or moment killer and and then uh, you know he wanders off and eventually by by the end of the space pursuit they end up just powering him off because he becomes such a pain. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was a little bit overkill. We probably didn't need that much comic relief. It was a serious setup that we were going through. But yeah, it's, it's good that he gets powered off, truthfully. Um, so when they get into the asteroid field, they, they've escaped the um, pursuing fleet. And they believe that they've landed on a rock. They have landed on the inside belly of a worm that lives inside of a space rock, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's pretty standard. You're flying through an asteroid field, you see a nice cave, you land in the cave, and it turns out that it's some kind of giant space worm. Why not? Why not, indeed. Indeed. Actually, that's like one of the kind of the more wacky and unreasonable and impractical sort of like animals in all of Star Wars. Because what, what, is, what does a giant space worm in an asteroid field even eat? Not spaceships. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but there's a fun little the cave is collapsing moment and they escape the space worm, which then puts them right back in the crosshairs of an Imperial Star Destroyer. Exactly. So at this point, they still need to fix the ship. They're they're struggling. They don't know where to go. And that's when Han suggests Lando. And everyone who's watching goes, where's Lando? What's Lando? Who's Lando? And it turns out it's Billy D. Williams. It is. And Lando, he's a person, not a system. Yes, yes. Um, Leia does ask, what, what's yeah, Lando? Yeah, she's like, what's the Lando system? And he says, Lan Le uh, Lando's not a system, it's a person. Yes. So we meet Billy D. Williams. He wears a cape. Um, he's in charge of Cloud City. What, what's his official position? So he's the Baron Administrator of the, of the Cloud City. Um, and Cloud City is basically a mining city. It floats above a planet called Bespin, and it mines Tabana Gas. Tabana gas is used to make power cartridges for blasters. It's the thing that they shoot when they shoot the shots. Oh, those laser gun things? The, yeah, all the laser guns, they're all powered by Tabana gas. And so uh, apparently Lando won control of the city in some sort of game of cards. And now he runs a city and sort of like, you know, skims off the profits of mining the gas. Right. And we also learn that there's some kind of sordid history between Han and Lando and their friendship may be more or less frenemies, but they're willing to uh, let bygones be bygones and move forward. Um, we also learn Lando fancies himself a bit of a ladies' man, perhaps. Um, 
But, you know, Lando may also be a bit of a misogynist. It depends on your interpretation here. Uh, the, the question is also, is Leia really the prettiest girl he's ever seen? Who knows? But he certainly does treat her that way very briefly. And, you know, I, I think that necessar doesn't necessarily translate as well into 2020 as maybe it was in 1981. So here yeah. we are kind of watching that. And it's a little bit skeezy, but, you know, Leia recognizes that and isn't overly impressed by Lando. So, um... When we, uh, when we get on there, we, we kind of start wondering, you know, do we trust Lando? What, what kind of guy is he? You know, Leia asks, can we trust him? And Han says, yeah, sure. They're, they're going to get the ship fixed up. Well, Han says specifically, no, we can't trust him. But he has, he's no friend of the Empire, so we can go to him for repairs. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Right. So uh, we also start meeting some other people here. So we learn um, that Vader has made his way to Cloud City. Yeah, and, and so the way this kind of works is since the hyperdrive on the Millennium Falcon is broken, they have to fly in less than faster than light speed, and it's fairly predictable where they're going to go. In fact, when they escape the Imperial fleet, Boba Fett, everybody's favorite bounty hunter, starts tracking them, and he undoubtedly reports where they're headed to Vader, who flies in a faster-than-light ship and gets there first. And so by the time the Millennium Falcon arrives at Bespin, uh, Vader has already made a deal with Lando to take uh, to use the Millennium Falcon crew as bait to capture Luke Skywalker. Um, though as it goes, as he goes on and on, he continuously makes the deal worse for Lando. He insists that um, Leia you know never allowed to leave the space station he eventually sells han to the bounty hunter and various other nefarious vadery things exactly at first lando thinks he and his cloud city are going to basically be left alone but you know in exchange for giving up han and you know and i think part of lando might be thinking well i might get han's lady so this will be okay um Boba Fett, we really don't know much about him other than he's a bounty hunter. And we uh, we know that Han's done something. We've seen him along the way have, you know, guys that he owes money to. We know he owes money to Jabba. We, we learned that uh, in A New Hope. Um, and so just kind of moving forward, Boba is going to cash in on the bounty. Vader wants to test out some new machine that he uh, is going to, use hopefully to bring Luke to the Emperor and um, unfortunately Luke shows up and he, he comes how long was he on Dagobah yeah this is a matter of a lot of debate um, and there are like there among fans and everything there's a there's a huge debate it's basically you have to figure that Luke is training on Dagobah for the same amount that it takes to get from the Hoth asteroid field to Bespin at sublight speeds the best guess based on like how much supply the Millennium Falcon has of like food and water and whatnot is it's probably weeks to maybe a month that everybody is like kind of hanging out together, even though in the movie it happens in about 20 minutes. There's a good chance that Luke is uh, training with Yoda for a couple of weeks. And toward the end of that training, he learns enough of the force to have a vision of his friends getting killed in Cloud City. And he uses that as justification to head there to save them against Yoda's warning. 
Exactly. And what we also, you know, that tracks with the fact that it gives them time in the Millennium Falcon to have been going slowly through space to have been tracked by Boba Fett to then tip off Vader and have everyone waiting to capture everyone yeah. <laughs> when we get there. So there's this thing called carbonite, which is some kind of metal? Is it um, ice? What, what is it? It appears to be some sort of like frozen carbon construct, but it's basically there's a there's an idea called carbon freezing where you can freeze organic matter in a suspended animation state in a big block of like solid carbon, I suppose. Um, and then later thaw it and revive uh, the the organic thing that you put in it. And, it, and it, I guess it's used for moving certain kinds of cargo, but you can also put people in it. And the idea, what, what Vader's idea is that it'll be too much trouble to bring Luke to the Emperor in sort of an awake and alive state. So he's going to trick him into getting carbon frozen and then take him to the Emperor that way. Um, but to make sure that the sort of Imagine like a like a cargo elevator versus a people elevator. You don't necessarily trust putting people in a cargo elevator. He throws Han Solo in there just to make sure that this won't kill Luke because that would be bad. Yeah, the Emperor would be really mad at him if, if he killed Luke first. Well, and actually worse than that, and it's like that is kind of true, although I think the Emperor would be okay with Luke getting killed. Vader at this point knows some things that are going to be revealed, and he wants Luke alive probably more than um, the Emperor wants Luke alive. I, I think that's fair. I would agree with that. So we're, we're standing at a, a very solemn moment. Han is going to be frozen. Uh, Leia is crying. Uh, Chewbacca, I, I think if Wookiees cry, he's going to cry. He, he's howling. Uh, Lando is feeling real bad about what this all looks like. And, and that's where the name of our podcast comes from. Um, at this point, Han is about to be frozen and Leia you know, yells to him, I love you. And he says, I know. And, and there he's frozen. And at that point, you know, Vader tells Lando, I'm going to take the Wookiee. I'm going to take the princess. And, you know, I'm going to, what else? He's going to take something else from Cloud City. He said he's going to leave a garrison there. So oh, he's okay. basically decided that the Empire is going to take over this mining station as well. So basically Lando's got nothing at this point. And so he signals to his security team and has them come guns drawn to uh, stop the stormtroopers and try to. And he takes off on an attempt to rescue Han and get Leia and Chewie to the Millennium Falcon and get out of there. Yeah, th their plan is to try to get out of there. Funny story in that whole in that whole escape thing. So he makes an announcement over the PA and he tells the citizens of Cloud City that uh, that the Empire has taken over the city and that they, if anybody doesn't want to work for the Empire, they should get out of there, which causes like general chaos. And that helps them, gives them some cover for their escape. But there's a, there's a part of the scene where you see a guy running, to, running toward the camera with what looks like an ice cream maker. And there's always been this question of like, what the hell is the ice cream maker? It turns out in the show, The Mandalorian, the, um, the container that the Imperial guy gives uh, the Mandalorian some uh, metal called Beskar, he gives him metal in a container and it's the same container. And so apparently this is like a standard container for, va for valuables in the Star Wars universe, or at least it was retconned that way. And so this guy was like running off with his personal safe. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So not ice cream. Not ice cream. All right. Well, that's good because that's in an emergency, not what I'm packing up. Probably not. No. No, definitely not. Um, 
So what we have left is the fight scene between Luke and Vader. Yeah, and this is one of the it's it's one of the more interesting fights. It's kind of long. It it meanders a little bit. Um, but there's some good lightsaber fights. There's some good um, uses of the force. There's some more telekinesis fights. A lot of quipping. There's a lot of talking for two guys who are kind of going at it with laser swords. Um, uh, and you know, Vader makes some comments about how Obi Wan has taught him well. He obviously has no idea that Luke's been training with Yoda. Um, and then you know the fight progresses. Vader is is clearly uh, kind of winning the fight, and he starts suggesting that maybe Luke join him um, and overthrow the Emperor. And it culminates in Vader cutting off Luke's hand. Luke at literally the end of the, the end of his rope. And Vader makes like kind of the biggest reveal in all of Star Wars. Uh, spoiler alert. If you guys haven't seen, I'm sorry. You probably should have by now. Yeah. And Luke reveal, or Vader reveals that he is Luke's father, Anakin Skywalker. Now, previously, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi had said that Vader killed Luke's father. So this is a bit of a shock to Luke who throws a big no. It's and a betrayal. It is from a betrayal. His mentor. Yeah, absolutely. And so Luke's got all these kind of things running through his head. Meanwhile, also just lost his hand. And then Vader reveals to him that the Emperor has foreseen that Luke may be able to kill or overthrow him. And Vader offers to join with Luke and overthrow the Empire Emperor and rule the galaxy as father and son. And Luke says, I'll never join you. And then basically allows himself to fall off the bridge and ends up uh, hanging from the bottom of the bottom of Cloud City. Yes. And that's where our friends Lando, Leia, uh, Chewbacca, and uh, C-3PO fly by in the Millennium Falcon. They find Luke literally hanging on for his life and they pick him up. Yeah. And then there's kind of a there's kind of a scene where now we're having sort of a telepathic conversation between Luke and Vader, and Luke is sort of denying what Vader's telling him. Vader's giving like the old "you know it to be true," um, and it really sets up um, kind of a, a, a cliffhanger ending to the movie, where we now know that like Luke is the son of the bad guy. That's wild. Han Solo is you know is, has been captured by bounty hunters no real clear winner in this whole thing vader didn't get what he wanted the rebels didn't get what they wanted um and you know now they're escaping in the millennium and the, this time finally the hyperdrive in the millennium falcon works and they managed to escape in hyperspace yes and what's really interesting is we've been talking for a half hour here and we haven't even talked about the emperor so we do meet the Emperor in this. We meet the biggest, baddest bad guy in all of Star Wars. He is the master to Vader. Vader keeps calling him my lord, my master. He's in charge of millions upon millions of battle fleets and the entire galactic empire. He manipulated the Senate. He is the balance to the force, if you will, between him and Vader with all of their bad side juju. And... It's this feeble old man in a hood. Yeah. And I mean, I think like when you, when he's revealed, you see um, Vader goes into a communications room and where normally holograms appear as like a miniature size of a person. This is just the big giant head of the emperor and Vader, who's established himself pretty clearly as a bad guy and, a, and like the dude who's choking out his own admirals, kneels 
and says, what is thy bidding my master? And so now you start to think, wow, like if this dude's kneeling down to this guy, this guy is super duper bad guy, right? And um, yeah, and they have a little conversation, they have a couple of different conversations over, over holograms, which you never really see the emperor in person, right? No. You only see him in hologram. Yeah. Um, interesting movie background, when they originally shot Empire Strikes Back, they had, um, they, they used uh, a woman whose name I can't recall in makeup um, with, overdubbed with the eyes of i want to say like an orangutan or something to make make the emperor look slightly less human and then they used a, a, a man to voice him and later ian mcdermott took over the role of emperor in return of the jedi and then reprised the role in all of the prequels and actually one of the sequels um, and then when they re-released for the special edition, they reshot the hologram scenes with Ian McDermott in his Emperor makeup, so that the Emperor is one of the one of the characters who is consistently portrayed and consistently played by the same person throughout the entire series. That's really cool. Yeah, couple others: Anthony Daniel as C three PO, Kenny Baker as R two D two. Up until the last movie, where both of them have uh, no, sorry, Anthony Daniel did play in all of the movies. Kenny Baker passed away before the last movie. Yes. Um. So yeah, we. We learn, you know, about this potential prophecy and given what we've learned throughout the film about the Emperor, if he foresees Luke Skywalker being this incredibly strong, powerful Jedi, then, and we see how strong he is with the Force and how strong and significant he is in relationship to Vader, when Vader suggests that he and Luke take on the Emperor... Now we have this new possible force to be reckoned with that I think based on what we've seen Luke and his behavior, we probably didn't think of him that way up until that moment. Yeah, that's super true. Yeah, so here, like you said, if the series had ended, if it was just this is it, like it would be really sad. Like it's an unhappy yeah. ending, right? Yeah, I, I, I would almost, I would say it's, is it, it's unhappy or, or at least inconclusive. Like uh, there's, like I said, there's really no clear winners and losers here. I mean, like Han Solo is definitely not doing great, um, and Luke lost a hand, but it's okay. He got a robot hand replacing it. But yeah, like really nobody, nobody ends satisfied in this, and it clearly sets up the need for a third movie. It, it does, and I think that's why this becomes the best movie. Uh, because there is a third movie, and we'll talk about you know Return of the Jedi. But really, because Return of the Jedi exists, this becomes the best movie, and that is something that we were comparing for anyone who's seen the the Matrix movies. I, I think you know we you watch the Matrix, the first one individually, it stands alone as a film. You start adding to it, and then they go. They went the wrong way and they didn't resolve it in a way that was satisfying whereas i felt jedi resolved everything in a very satisfying way and created empire as the movie with the plot development the character advancement the emotional pieces with the romance the the learning about the force like kevin said the best lines about the force yoda is awesome in so many ways he, he's a mentor not just to the jedi but you know, I, I think his his sayings are relevant to how we as humans live our lives today. Yeah. Um, I'm with you on all of that, except <laughs> these uh, theoretical Matrix movies that you talk about. I don't know anything about any movie beyond the Matrix. 
Oh, yeah, we, we made a promise as part of our relationship. Uh, eventually, after we watched uh, The Matrix 2 and The Matrix 3, and they were terrible, um, and they just left us really hanging and just disappointed that we had wasted all that time in our lives, we agreed to disavow knowledge of those. So um, Kevin's going to play dumb, and I, I'm going to admit I'd like those six hours of my life back. Um, so I, I think this kind of comes back to how we talk about our relationship and you know, you look at Empire as being this incredible movie, but it's made that much better because of Return of the Jedi. And I, I think that that's how I look at you, is that you bring out the best in me, is that you're pretty great and I'm pretty great, or we'd like to think we are, so forgive us if you guys disagree. But, you know, I, I think together we bring out the best of each other. Yeah, and, I'll agree with that. And that's, you know, what, what you want to see in a relationship. You know, a new hope stands on its own. It's a... I mean, there's a few unresolved issues for sure. We don't know much about the Force. Vader's still around. We've never even met the Emperor. No one uh, lives happily ever after, but it looks pretty good, you know? Um, but that, now that we move past that and we get into Empire, we need that resolution. We, we need that relationship component. And I, I think that Jedi and Empire are, you know, like in Amanda and Kevin. Yeah. Um, and so when they're individually good films and, and the combination is what really creates the excellence. So we're not going to talk about it because it's still uh, plenty of time for people to still go see the movie, but this is post-episode uh, 9. Kevin, without any spoilers, how do you feel? I feel like if you don't want any spoilers, you should... Hit pause now and skip ahead 30 seconds. No, no spoilers. And I'll spoilers. still not make any spoilers. <laughs> um, no, I feel really great about the movie. Uh, I, I thought it was, I, I thought it really did what was needed for the franchise. Um, I think it left the Skywalker saga uh, with, uh, with a satisfying conclusion. And that's not a spoiler. They were pretty clear that's what they were shooting for. Um, and, uh, and I really, really liked it. So I look forward to sometime in the future, probably after the, after the digital release, uh, when we feel comfortable talking talking through that whole movie and uh, and some of the things, unfortunately, it means that we're going to have to have talked about episode eight first, and that's going to be an uncomfortable podcast. Yeah, like we said, don't waste your time watching episode eight. But if you want to understand all the things that we're going to hate about episode eight, you've got time to start watching that. It's yeah. Although to be fair, right, one of the original motivations of of us doing this podcast when we were hanging out with. Uh, with uh, my brother and, and his wife uh, over Thanksgiving, we were talking about episode eight and he had never seen it. And he said, if somebody could just tell me what that movie's about, I'd listen to a podcast about that. So here we are today. Yeah. So on that note, thanks for listening, Kevin. I love you. I know.